0: Welcome to a special message with Michael Anthony at Couragematters.com. Today we have a special guest speaker, Janet Palacelli, wife of Michael Anthony, who spoke at a women's event at Grace Fellowship in York, Pennsylvania. So hold on to your seats as Janet teaches from God's Word. When I was a kid, we had Sunday school in a really big classroom that was divided into several smaller classrooms by a big, long curtain. And I remember the first time that my Sunday school teacher was telling us about what happened after Jesus died and how the curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And I remember her saying, you know, that the curtain that you see here that divides these classrooms is not even nearly as tall as the one that was in the temple. And I was amazed. And just looking at that curtain, I, I, I could not understand it. All I remembered knowing and understanding was that it had to have been the power of God for it to be torn from the top to the bottom. I mean, how else can you explain that? It had to have been the power of God. But now I understand the significance of it. I, I think in my mind, I thought it was just God's response to Jesus dying on the cross. It was, it was heart-wrenching. I think I thought of it that way. And I think that is part of it, God's heart being torn in two by the death of Jesus on the cross. But what it really tells us is that he was opening the way. He was opening the way for us to come into his presence. We no longer needed that high priest to go once a year, to go through all those rituals of cleansing himself and his family and offering sacrifices for himself and all that first, and then go in and offer sacrifices on our behalf. We no longer need that. We're under the new covenant now, and Jesus has done that once and for all. Now, the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day was built by Herod. So scripture doesn't actually record the measurements of that curtain or its specifications. What we do see in scripture is that long before that in Exodus, the Israelites were told to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman. And then in historical records other than the Bible, we see that same description of the curtain. So we know that if we doubted that the Bible was true, we could see from historical records that there is a description of that same curtain in the same temple, and it was described in the same way. History books disagree on the height of that curtain. All of them say that it was at least 30 feet high, but some of them say that it was 60 or 80 feet high. Think of the significance, though, for a curtain that's that tall to be torn in two from top to bottom. And Jesus' sacrifice was what opened the way into the very presence of God for you and for me. The Old Covenant was made to emphasize both the seriousness of sin and how it tears us away from God and to emphasize the depth of God's love for us. He wants fellowship with us. That is what this is about. He wants fellowship with us. Only the blood atonement of Jesus Christ allows for fellowship with God throughout eternity. Without his sacrifice, there would be no possibility of this. And how merciful God is that he provided a sacrifice for us to die in our place. We've seen that word atonement a few times now. And in fact, Mike has mentioned it a few times in the last week or two with Easter and Good Friday. He's mentioned that word atonement and where it comes from. But I wanted to talk about it again because I think it's so fascinating. Remember that Leviticus 17 that we read earlier says it's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And in 1 John 2, 2, it says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, some versions of the Bible use different, different words for that. The ESV and the King James Version use the word propitiation instead. But when you look that up, it simply means atoning sacrifice. The word atonement comes from an interesting place. In the 1500s, one and ment, M-E-N-T, were combined to create the word one mint. It had never been used before that. And it was used in religious literature to describe the redemption, reconciliation, and at one of mankind with God. There apparently was no English word to describe that Hebrew idea before, so they made one up. One-ment became one-ment. From at-one-ment, at-one-ment of mankind with God, the next slide shows at one is where we get our current word, atonement, from. So we pronounce it atonement, but it comes from at-one-ment. Forgiveness is important not in and of itself, but because of its purpose. Its purpose was at one mint with God. It's unity with God. It's the restoration of a relationship. It's not in itself the end goal, forgiveness. The end goal is reconciliation intimacy with God. And this is the primary teaching of Scripture that we see from beginning to end. When we read it cover to cover and we understand it, we understand that God is teaching this primarily, that that's His desire. He created us for relationship and intimacy with Him, and it was broken because of sin, and He redeemed it through the blood of Christ, that life-for-life sacrifice. Forgiveness can't happen without sacrifice, and relationship can't happen without forgiveness. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not part of the gospel, they are the gospel. You might have asked yourself the question, I know that I have. What have I done that's so bad that it requires this? I mean, I know that I'm not perfect, but why did it require a life sacrifice? So Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. And that's very serious. The soul who sins is the one who will die. That's pretty final. God showed Israel through the Levitical system that the penalty for sin was death, that the only way they could be restored is through identifying with the death of another, sacrificing another's life in place of their own. And in the same way, we can only be restored if we identify with Christ's death. The sin nature of a person is what made this death of a substitute necessary. This is substitutionary atonement, a substitute that brings at oneness, that restores relationship. So let's back up a little bit here to sin. What is sin in the first place? That it separates me from God and requires a life sacrifice of Jesus to bring me back into oneness with him. I think it's important that we understand this. What is sin exactly? Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. If that's true, and if faith is complete trust, then whatever is not completely trusting in God is sin. Trusting in and relying on myself is sin. Sin is that spirit of self-will that sets itself up against God's will, substituting self for God, human independence for dependence on him. Sin is doing anything apart from God. So we think of that as sometimes they're called sins of commission, things that we commit, that we do that are not in line with God, or neglecting to do what is of God. So sin is doing anything apart from God, the sins of commission, or neglecting to do what is of God. And that's sometimes called sins of omission. We omit those things. When we realize that sin is essentially building our identity on anything other than God, and we're doing that all the time if we think about our lives, building our identity on what is not of God, that helps us to understand, doesn't it? Our complete and absolute dependence on God on his mercy and the forgiveness that he extends to us. And I think we also become less likely to judge, too, when we understand that, that we all are in desperate need of his forgiveness. It makes us less likely to separate ourselves from others who commit big sins or seem to be involved in a lifestyle of sin, maybe. So sin in a word is pride. It's pride that sets us up against God and separates us from him. And the result of this pride is twofold. I had a professor in Bible college who used to say that all sin falls into two categories, the sin of self-glorification and the sin of self-protection. I've thought a lot about that over the years, and I I think she was right. Those two things are in direct violation of the greatest commandment to love God and love each other. Both of those things, self-glorification and self-protection, prevent vulnerability and humility. I can't be a good friend to others when I'm always building myself up, nor when I'm busy protecting myself. And sometimes those happen almost without us knowing it. And when we're deeply hurt by someone and we carry around the weight of that person's sin in our lives rather than forgiving them, that actually leads us into sin ourselves. The sin of protecting ourselves rather than trusting God to protect us. Sin or pride is death because it is separation from God when we were created for relationship with him at one mint. This brings me back to the story that I told about my friend Veronica. Without forgiveness, we would not have had a relationship. And it's true in all relationships, The loss of relationship hurts. Last time, if you remember, I told another story about a loss of relationship that I experienced. And that relationship was never restored. And I had to come to a place where I forgave in spite of the fact that she never apologized or tried herself to restore that relationship. But I know that a loss of relationship hurts. And a lot of you also know that a loss of relationship hurts. And that is why Jesus did what he did. So forgiveness is not just part of the gospel. It's the whole gospel. It's the good news that God loves us so much that through the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, He's made a way for us to be with Him. And that is good news. I think we struggle to forgive because we forget what God went through to forgive us and why He had to go to that extent. If we understand and accept fully the forgiveness that Christ offers, that's really the only way that we can turn and offer forgiveness to other people, as we should. That right relationship with God equals a right relationship with people. And if we have a right relationship with people, that reflects our right relationship with God. It's a sure sign. It's a sure sign that we're not walking in the freedom that comes from complete forgiveness from God if we're not able to freely forgive others. So think about the next time that you realize you're holding on to something. Have you completely accepted the forgiveness that comes from Christ? Colossians 3.13 says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And this is not a suggestion, ladies. This is a command in Scripture. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And we're not being asked to do this in a vacuum either. We're to do it in light of the forgiveness we ourselves have received that we've just looked at this morning. Let's look at Psalm 103 next, 10 through 12. Turn there with me if you'd like. Psalm 103, 10 through 12. I love this entire psalm, but we're going to look at 10 through 12 today. He, the Lord, does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you look at a globe, there's a northernmost point, the North Pole, And there's a southernmost point, the South Pole. So there's a fixed distance between those two points, the north and the south. But have you ever noticed that there's no easternmost point on a globe and no westernmost point on a globe? You can just go around and around the globe in an eastward direction or a westward direction, but those two never meet. And God is saying, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In other words, our sin has been taken away forever. Those two never meet. It's never to be seen again. And so often, I think that we get it backwards. We try to fix our relationships first without understanding this truth that God has laid out in scripture for us to understand. We don't really have an understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross and what that means for us. We've heard it. Most of us have heard it, but we don't really understand that mystery. The Bible calls it a mystery. In Colossians 1, it says Paul refers to it as the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles us the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And there's a reason he calls it a mystery. It is hard for us to grasp. You could all probably explain it to the person sitting next to you, what the cross means. But do you really understand it for yourself? Because I don't. I feel like as long as I have been a believer and as much as I have studied this, I don't. I don't understand it. I really don't understand that mystery that is Christ, the cross, and how his death, his bloodshed took my place. But I think we need to try to understand it. And we need to ask God to open the eyes of our hearts that we can understand it so that we can freely pass it on. If we don't understand it for ourselves, we can't freely pass it on. And if we're expecting others to meet our needs, we will be left wanting every time. We're not getting from God what he's trying to give us. We get hurt. We don't forgive. Hatred and bitterness result. And this is why we have a constant need for a savior. When we don't forgive, we're actually the ones then who are walking in sin. Take that in for a minute, because this is really serious. It's so serious, in fact, that in Matthew 6, 14 to 15. Matthew 6:14 to 15. It says, "For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." This is serious. We are the ones walking in sin when we choose not to forgive. Forgiveness takes faith. It takes faith to believe that God will take care of the hurt and make it right. It takes faith to believe that God will take care of us. And forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. And just like in Lynn's testimony, she didn't start with the feeling. Very clearly, she didn't start with the feeling. But she prayed for it, and God brought that feeling about it's like too you've heard that you know if you're in a bad mood and if you smile the feelings will start to come with it you'll start to feel happy just because you put that smile on your face and forgiveness is like that too we don't begin with a feeling it can't begin with a feeling and so they can't be the starting point we can't base our forgiveness of others on how we feel and we have to start with a decision instead. It has to be that decision, like the decision of putting the smile on your face. It has to be a decision to forgive, and then the feelings can follow. In some cases, that decision needs to be made again and again. It's not always once and done, as we might like it to be. Let's look for a minute at a couple things that forgiveness is not. It is not to ignore truth and justice. It is actually looking squarely at the truth and then choosing to extend forgiveness and mercy. Forgiving is different than excusing the person. Jesus didn't excuse what we did. He didn't overlook our sin. He looked straight at it, and then he chose to extend mercy. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he saw that sin. He acknowledged it and chose to extend mercy. So we look at the sin. We look squarely at it, but we choose to forgive. Forgiveness is not to hand over the power to the offender. Sometimes we think that too. But forgiveness is instead to free yourself. Sometimes we think that it's kind of a a meek and wimpy action. It's the inability to stand up for ourselves, but that's not the case. Forgiveness is actually taking courage and running straight into that battle. Forgiveness is not waiting for or dependent on an apology. We've talked about that already a little bit. Some of the people who hurt us are not sorry. And what if there's a refusal to reconcile? The purpose is reconciliation, but what if you can't reconcile? What if the person's no longer even alive? There is really, truly no option for reconciliation in that case or for that person to apologize to you. Does that mean that we should just be stuck forever in that prison of unforgiveness? When you forgive someone, you might be the only one who's healed. And you can't control the other person or force reconciliation. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciling. And forgiveness isn't only necessary when someone meant to hurt us either. Because a lot of times, we don't mean to hurt each other. In fact, I would guess that most often when we hurt each other, it's just because of simple misunderstanding. It's not because the other person meant to hurt us or that we meant to hurt the other person. So often, we base our forgiveness on what we think is fair or deserved. We've learned unhealthy habits when it comes to forgiveness. And it's important to consider what we have learned or are learning and what our kids are learning. There's a lot of debate these days about what kind of school to put your kids in, homeschooling versus public school versus private school. I'm grateful that we have options. And the fact of the matter is that there are good and bad things about homeschooling, and good and bad things about public school, and good and bad things about private school. No matter what we choose, there are pros and cons. But we can all agree, I think, that the goal is to give our kids the best education possible. So whichever road you've chosen with your kids, or did choose, or think you will choose, school is about learning. One of the things I think we probably all learned about in school is Isaac Newton's third law of motion. Maybe you remember that. It states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. For example, picture a swimmer moving herself through the water. She pushes the water backward to propel herself forward. Equal and opposite reaction. So last year in in school, my boys were learning this. And when I asked my son Titus to give me an example of Newton's third law of motion, with a straight face he said, if you hit me, I must hit you back. (laughs) He didn't mean me, of course, but the principle as in, if someone hits me, I must hit them back. He was being funny, but sadly, we tend to apply this to our relationships, often without even realizing it. We base our forgiveness on what we think is fair or deserved. Everything kind of has to even out. So if you're humble and you act humbly toward me, well, I can be humble with you then. If the other person is prideful and bitter, well, we don't really see the need then to humble ourselves before them. So what does it look like then when I choose to forgive? Forgiveness is choosing not to keep a record of wrongs, like we see in 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Sometimes we keep that record of wrongs as if we're a person who's working in some sort of emotion archive, collecting and sorting all of these hurts and wrongs done to us to be used at a later time. Forgiveness is giving up the right to be right. When we hold tight to the need to declare right and wrong, forgiveness is not possible anymore. Forgiveness is, or can be, still genuine, even if I remember the hurt. We've all heard that we're supposed to forgive and forget. God says in Hebrews eight twelve, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And how thankful I am that God remembers our sins no more. But we are not God, and we do remember a lot of times, don't we? Sometimes it takes a miracle of God to forget. And is my forgiveness insincere if I don't forget? No, it isn't. I don't think that my ability, I know, that my ability to forget does not determine whether or not I am sincere in my forgiveness. Forgiveness in the end is not about us or even about the people or person that offended us. We forgive because we're told to forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's ultimately about obedience, obedience and worship to God. But there's always a personal benefit to us when we obey God, isn't there? God never asks us to do anything that will not ultimately also benefit us, and that's the goodness of God. The reward for being obedient is always worth it. So let's talk again for one second, about the result of choosing not to forgive. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That root of bitterness grows from the seed of unforgiveness. That root of bitterness grows from a seed of unforgiveness. That's where it starts. I remember that during one of those long winters way up north as a kid, I got pneumonia, and I had to take medicine every few hours around the clock. So that meant that my mom had to come into my room in the middle of the night with a glass of water and a big pink pill, and she would sit next to me while I tried to swallow this thing. I was only probably about eight at the time, and I would try over and over again to try to get that pill down, and I could not do it. And before too long, that shiny pink outer coating on that pill was worn off, and only that chalky, nasty, bitter white stuff in the center would be left. And I think that a root of bitterness tastes a lot like that pill— I don't let things go, and I stew on things until they become bitterness in my mouth. And let me tell you, the taste stays with you for a long time, too. My bitterness hurts me far more than it will ever hurt anyone else. In some cases, the person who hurt me is not even alive anymore. And is my lack of forgiveness punishing that person in any way? It's only punishing me. In addition, when we're offended and we don't forgive, we end up being the ones doing the offending. It can look like pulling away from relationships, avoiding someone, changing churches because we don't want to see the people that hurt us, putting up walls, not being vulnerable or authentic, leaving others out, being unkind. It looks like a lot of different things, essentially, and not good things. Essentially, when we've been offended and we don't forgive, we begin to protect ourselves. We begin to fear pain and rejection. And it's that sin of self-protection that we talked about, which is a lack of trust. It's a lack of humility. It's saying, I don't trust God to take care of me in this situation, so I need to do it myself. I'm setting myself up against God in that situation. And that's pride. It begins to be a cycle that keeps us trapped a cycle of being easily offended, of not forgiving those offenses, becoming bitter and even more self-protective. So how can I become a less easily offended person? How can I move on from the offenses done against me in the past and the things that keep me stuck? Well, Jesus is our best example and our best teacher here. Jesus did not get offended when he had every right to be. He suffered for sins he didn't even commit. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5:21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Not God made him who had no sin to take up sin for us, but to be sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. How fair is that? that Jesus actually became sin for our sakes, willingly suffering death, and not only just death, but a humiliating death on a cross. First Peter 2.23 tells how Jesus responded when he was very unfairly and very publicly punished. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And again in Isaiah 53, seven, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Why? Why didn't he open his mouth? I always used to feel so righteously indignant about that. Why didn't he just defend himself and tell them who he was? Why didn't he just call upon the thousands of angels that were at his disposal and show all of them? First, because he was being obedient to his father and he knew the sacrifice of his life had to be made. He had to substitute his life for ours. But also, Jesus was silent because he did not have to defend himself. He knew who he was. He had nothing to prove. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to strive for, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, since in his very nature he was God, he didn't have to work toward or struggle for that identity or position. He didn't have to pump himself up, self-glorification, or defend himself, sin of self-protection. His knowledge of who he was and his right relationship to God made him unoffendable that's not actually a word, but it sounds right, doesn't it? He could not be offended. And likewise, in the same way we become unoffendable, not when we put up a high enough wall of self-protection around ourselves, but when we see ourselves the way God sees us. When we don't see ourselves the way God sees us, that is actually sin. And when we don't see others the way God sees them, that is sin. If God says we're worth the price of the ultimate sacrifice of his life, then that is what we are. And it's not humble to conclude otherwise, that we're nothing or worthless. That's actually pride, setting ourselves up against God. That's saying that he died for nothing. Sometimes in Christian circles, especially among ladies, we use the term brokenness a lot, and it really just means humility. Rightly understood, that's a good thing. Humility before our great and awesome God is saying yes to him no matter what he asks of us. But wrongly understood, brokenness becomes about us. It becomes about our deep wounds and the countless tears we've shed. And the reality is, though, we can be completely wrecked emotionally by something and still not be broken and still not be humble before God. We become introspective instead and self-focused. Rather than lifting our eyes to the Lord, it becomes like a flag that we wave or a banner that we have that we're broken, but it's not real brokenness or humility before God. We're consumed with ourselves, not him. We've given in to a spirit of defeat. Now, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we're not all the same in how we respond to being confronted with our sin. Sometimes it's the Lord gently speaking to us about our sin. How do you respond then when it's God gently and quietly speaking to you about your sin? Sometimes our spouse or another person calls us out on something. And how do we respond then? Is our first reaction to cover it up or to blame someone else? Or do we humbly accept it? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He draws near when we give up our pride and choose forgiveness and humility. Have we not heard about God's kindness this morning? Romans 2, 4 says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? We have heard about his kindness this morning, haven't we? His life for a life and the curtain torn. The way provided for us for us to be in his very presence. But verse 5 goes on to say, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We have a choice to make this morning, ladies. What are you going to choose? Are you going to accept the kindness? Am I going to accept the kindness and forgiveness of God and let that lead us to repentance, to let go of our hurts and any bitterness that's left inside of us? Are we going to choose to extend forgiveness just as in Christ God forgave us? I hope that your choice is not to harden your heart and continue to hold on to the things that have held you captive. I hope and pray that with all of my heart that you will not leave here choosing to continue to harden your heart and hold on to things that have held you captive. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.